when I hear like pyramid to circles, I can immediately see like, yeah, of course we are as human beings, as societies, we are upgrading our systems from systems that have their origin in, you know, 18th, 19th century thinking (laughs) to something that definitely is going to look a lot more circular. (laughs) There is a lot more space for multiple intelligences. There is a lot more space for multiple voices. There is a lot more space for collective intelligence. Welcome to Pyramid to Circles. Circles. This podcast is for the leaders and for the change makers who have the goal of evolving their company towards more collective intelligence, more empowerment, more self-organization, but asking themselves how to make this happen, where to start, and how to get inspiration from others. Welcome everyone. My guest today is a dear friend. A person that I love, but also respect a lot for his work and for his approach to it. So today I would like to shed light on a change agent, an advanced practitioner in the field of organizations transformation. He has a unique set of skills as he's both an integral facilitator and an integral coach. So for many of you, it might sound Chinese, but trust me, it means a lot if you're interested in making a change at a deep level in an organization. So I'm really looking forward to have him sharing his experience and to learn from him. I also love him for his commitment as he, in the nonprofit sector, but also for being a person really driven by his own values. So Remco, welcome. Really nice to have you with us. Thanks for having me. So just maybe tell us, where are you as we speak? In which part of the world? So I am uh, calling in from Austria, uh, living in the countryside near, near Graz, near the south of Austria. And originally, you are from uh, the Netherlands, and you, you, you and and uh, yeah, so you have this multinational or multicultural life. Um, so I'm thrilled to have you uh, and to and to yeah share and understand your exp- share our experiences, but learn from your experience. But I think it's very special. And uh, maybe we could start by asking you to tell us what about your story as a change agent, as a facilitator, as a coach. How did it started and 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 then what happened and what do you do now? I think already from a young age onwards, I was very interested somehow in how how people organize themselves, how collaboration works. Uh, you started maybe at sports clubs or you know school clubs, um, and then kind of making that also to a topic of study when I studied sociology and institution uh, institutional economics. From there on, kind of dived into this world of uh, civil society, uh, first through student clubs and, you know, then ending up in what we call international development sector, working with NGOs um, uh, different parts of the world. And just very passionate and intrigued about, you know, how people try to bring change about um, in the outside world. And then, of course, also in the inside world. Uh, of their organizations and their networks that's become a lifelong fascination that's never left me what kind of context do you work in the world that that i do most of my work in is the is the world of civil society uh the world of uh some of the aid agencies or the ngos uh you know like oxfam or uh, uh from, from those who are in the netherlands uh, humanitarian uh, organizations that in themselves are quite large systems uh, and often global systems or international systems uh, with their own kind of complexities and their own uh, challenges. 
uh, that's the world I professionally grew up in. Uh, and it's a world of what I believe is very meaningful work. Um, and it's a, it's a world where I meet lots of passionate people with lots of intriguing challenges. So that, the, that's the main world, yeah, yeah. Yeah. On your side, working with NGOs or large NGOs, what are the kind of challenges that is specific to them that you meet when they ask you to work with them? Well, there are often organizations that that work with big ideals and big ideals that uh, you know are 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 certainly not within their control. Uh, at best, they can make a contribution, but the time span of the challenges uh, that they work on um, is, of course, long. It's often generational work when you think of the work work of around human rights or social justice or environmental justice. Those are big, you know, big ideals and big challenges, um, and at best you can play a meaningful but modest role. Uh, so that is, that, you know, that is part of the reality of such organizations. Um, the other part of the reality is, of course, that on many of the challenges, there's often in the short term very little progress at all. Um, if, you, if you think of the many organizations who work for environmental justice, very tough times. You know, there's enormous urgency, enormous complexity, uh, and then very modest progress. Um, So, so that's what makes that's one of the things that makes those organizations uh, unique, and it definitely plays also into, um, yeah, the challenges that they have, you know, to organize, uh, to um, to be effective, uh, and to be, shall we say, healthy or whole. No? Because it's, mm. yeah. So th those are some of the some that's those are some of the challenges that that I see for these kinds of organizations. So the gap between their big ideal and the reality or the capacity to make any progress it will be maybe one of the tension that they are dealing with, or the fruit. The, yeah. The, and and what, and what about money? Um, I I used to work it for NGOs as well, and I remember that uh, I found there was so much meaning in there, and and it was so purposeful. And 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 the reason why people were joining, including me, was the purpose, the reason, you know, the, the the good that we were making, and it was a very strong driver for everyone. And the paradox was that um, those are NGOs uh, needed, you know, funding to live. So, so once they are created, funded to continue existing, doing their purpose. But then, doing the, needing the funding became in itself a search because they couldn't, you know, they, they needed the money to just simply to live, and it kind of became against the the end goal, which is. In the first place, they shouldn't even exist. They shouldn't even be there because they shouldn't be the problem they that they're trying to fix. So there, there was this this paradox of um, we're trying to fix a problem, but we need to 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 find funding for it. So therefore, we need to, um, in a way, sell ourselves, uh, uh, do lobbying, uh, do all kind of activities for that. And that was I, I found there there was a tension as well. I don't know if it's an experience that you're having as well, and how it, if if yes, how it plays out. Yeah, you might you might say that. Um... In my experience, many of these organizations have these two imperatives. So they have like an impact imperative <laughs> and they have an institutional imperative. And sometimes there is, there is tension. Um, it is also true that I think the traditional way of how we look at organizations where, for example, or systems where we would say like, well, there is a state who, you know, has, uh, works for the public, uh, as a public interest. And then we have the, the private sector that has a private interest. And then we have something that we might call a third sector which is you know which is which captures that everything that falls by the wayside so to speak and therefore in in certain ways should not should not have to exist 
is of course uh, but one way of looking at it. I think if you look at the institutional landscape, it is nowadays much more hybrid. Um, you yourself work for a B Corp. Uh, there are many social enterprises. Yeah, yeah. There are many. There are many NGOs that uh, you know are also hybrid in the sense that they uh, that the way they operate or the way they organize themselves very much looks like businesses. Uh, there are many public institutions that have copied, uh, you know, practices from the private sector. If you look at the world of corporate social responsibility, we see maybe the private sector taking on some of the values that we might have traditionally found in civil society. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, the imperatives that you have, like the meaning that you make in the world, the impact that you make in the world, and the way in which you find the resources to make that impact uh, is maybe present. Um uh, also in many of the organizations that uh, that you work with yeah you work yeah, for. yeah yeah uh, certainly also certainly also present in civil society sure yeah okay so i was curious to ask you another question um i said introducing you that you are integral facilitator and integral coach so um what does that mean <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think for for people who are not into integral uh integral theory um for me it's just uh try to look at any phenomena as holistically as you can so to look at you know both what is visible uh you know as the outer world or the outer game and what's what's more invisible like the inner game and so if you think about organizations you know what's what's visible is of course you know the, the services the products the systems the way they look the buildings maybe um uh, the, the structures but the inner game maybe speaks more to the mindset to the culture to the shared values um and i think the same could be said of of course individuals the same could maybe be said of societies and i think take an integral view means to look at all those aspects together so the individual the collective the inner and the outer and from that perspective kind of try to see um how systems evolve And then maybe when we are facilitators or coaches, what you might do to, uh, yeah, to make to to help that evolve in a more healthy way or in a more inclusive way. Mm. Um, but that's for me what it means to to look at things from an integral perspective, and then to facilitate, as we both know, is uh, nothing more than to just make things a little easier. So I don't want to downplay our work, but it's uh, what we do, I think. How do you express that? How do you use that map uh, in in your interventions, in the way you design them or prepare them and accompany? Mm -hmm. What what does that mean? Because that's very interesting for our audience, who is maybe you know meeting some change challenges, and they could get ideas from that. So so it's just if yeah. you take us by the hand and, and and lead us through your way of thinking in 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 approaching a client or a context. I think. My experience is that very often when, when clients or organizations approach us, they would approach us with a challenge that is very much part of their outer game. They maybe want to make a new strategic framework. Mm. They maybe want to maybe generate growth. They maybe feel that the organizational structures are no longer working for them. So all those things would be in the outer world. Um, And then very quickly, when you start engaging, uh, you might start pointing at 
all the ways in which that outer game is very much dependent on the inner game. Uh, so, for example, the belief systems, or for example, the culture, or for example, a collective sense of purpose, where maybe there is no alignment, or where maybe there is time for a change. Uh, maybe there's different schools of thought. Um, maybe there are other developmental challenges. Um, we often find, of course, that that's where the real uh, potential lies for lasting change. And in a similar vein, you might say that, especially when we work with organizations, of course, the 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 the, the initial challenge is always more on the collective level. Um, but then very quickly, you can start making the link to how, you know, what's happening at the collective level is, of course, dependent on the different individual uh, components of a system. So, for example, a leadership team or, for example, you know, individual, yeah, any individual forces in the system, really. Um, and that's, of course, then where you quite quickly can start making a link to coaching and to how the collective development of a system is also bound up by the individual development of, of, of leaders, for example. Yeah. So when uh, Mr. Ox Oxfam is calling you, Remco, and say, hello, Remco, we have a new, we have a new strategic uh, plan and can you help us to, I don't know, to, de to design it? Mm -hmm. um, that's the outer world uh, request. And suddenly after, you, you know, you're coaching individuals. So there, there, are, there, are, there are steps there. I understand, the, I understand the logic, but how does it unfold? Do you make a recommendation there or... I guess you still work on the strategic plan and then and then uh, uh, maybe there is a way to do it where you address those different dimensions at the same time. So this is a bit in terms of design and I'm a bit technical here, but I think it's very interesting for audience uh, to understand like how you think and approach. Would you start by working on the strategic plan on the outer world, like like starting to, you know, fill in the boxes and and facilitating a conversation among them so they do it? Or or yeah, I'm just curious, how, how would you approach the question and and, and, and bring them in this level? In my experience, many of these um, these organizations are very action-oriented. They want to make a change in the world, and they want to make a tangible change in the world. You know, even when we talk about intangible things like you know social justice or uh, you know like uh, better biodiversity, environmental rights, that's very tangible. <laughs> I can see that outside when it is better, and and it's also it's also what 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 got me into that line of work. I I. It's something that it speaks to my passion as well. And so when an organization approaches us to work on strategy, that in itself um, excites me and it interests me. Um, and I've also learned enough, and maybe you have too, that there is a very good reason why they're looking for external support. And the reason is, is very, uh, very seldom technical, uh, very bright people. And I'm sure you have that in your line of work too. Uh, and a strategy in itself is not rocket science. But of course, the collaborative processes underneath that question, how you make meaning of the world together, how you come to kind of a shared sense of uh, purpose, how you understand the different paradoxes and tensions that you have to navigate, that is very much the inner game And it is very much dependent on your quality of collaboration, the quality of conversation, uh, the um, the ability to hold, you know, complexity together and understand and discerning where you, you know, might uh, add the most value. 
So that's that's very much the inner game. And if you if you work on strategic development, that's of course very quickly that's what you get into with a group. Uh, and that's where, as a facilitator, I think we can do meaningful work. Yeah, because yeah. we can we can help people to yeah to hold more complexity. Creating the conversation that is a bit on the edge that is both safe and risky to have. Um, yeah. And finding and because that's the place where there is a learning, there is transformation, there is progress. Would you would you agree with that? I would agree, and often and often those edges are kind of bound up in in, in tension fields where people which is often the reason why people need support. So if I just think about a concrete ex concrete recent example, um, working with a university on strategy, and there was a fundamental tension between um, a group in the organization that felt like, you know, the university should be in the middle of society because we've got so much urgent problems and we need to be a part of finding solutions. And there was another current in the organization that felt that, you know, there is a time and a place also for the more somewhat distant science where there is a more distant perspective uh, that is not kind of distracted or seduced by our everyday problems. And this is a tension field. And the reason why then a team is not able to kind of agree on a strategy is because they're not seeing, they're not seeing themselves, they're not seeing the tension that they are a part of. And then I think as facilitators, we are often in a position to help them see themselves and help them see their own system, help them also disidentify, because of course, different groups then identify with certain perspectives, disidentify and see, okay, there are there are very valid reasons why we need to be in the middle of society. And there are very valid reasons why we need to also preserve our distance or our kind of somewhat more neutral, uh, longer term perspective. And once a group sees that, they can have a much better dialogue and it becomes easier for them to kind of find a sweet spot, I think, mm. um, of where they want to move towards. Um, I think that is that is often then where we have where we have added value. It is modest but meaningful. Yeah, I just feel like sharing something practical again. This is a bit the intention of today, being talking a, with a practitioner, with someone who's on the field in many contexts. Um, talking about polarities, I, I I found it one of the biggest learning I had from our training, which was a long time took. It was over six months or so, uh, and I know you did it again. So you're you're way more advanced than me because you you really did it as a, as one of the trainers or in a training team. And by the way, the, we were trained by uh, Diane Hamilton, and she's the next guest on the podcast. By the way, so so uh, yeah. that's going to be that's going to be for our audience an interesting podcast also to listen to. So so what she was teaching us was to work with polarities on, as you just described. And what I found very interesting was um, inviting everyone on the same side of the table and describing and be, and sensing in themselves those two polarities, and to explore what are the upside and the downside of each of them. And very oftentimes, I realized that I was personally blind to the upside of the opposite polarity, the one I didn't want. And, and I was kind of aware of the downside of my own polarity, but I didn't really want to look at them. But the big learning was really observing and acknowledging the upside of the other polarity. And, and from there, in, in, it, it has been so, uh, such a big learning that I learned to spot polarities at play in, in society, in organizations. So when people want to defend something so hard, and that is becomes a, a signal that it's polarized, and probably there is there is a blind spot, there is a refusal to look at the other polarity. 
and and give an example in society that is in some way is a bit transgressional when you start to speak about that because think of one you think of inclusion today we all want to do inclusion which is and it becomes very polarized on the idea we should do inclusion so inclusion is great inclusion is good is the good and yeah. and as a as a facilitator or as integral facilitator if i was in a room of people that really want to defend that i would like to show, to explore the other polarity which is exclusion because there is there yeah. is probably something to learn what is the upside of exclusion because you really want to embrace yeah. inclusion, we should explore exclusion as well and look and, and confront that and confront those two polarities. Yeah. And the learning is there. So what is the upside of exclusion? And if we can if, if we can embrace both, and what is the downside of exclusion? And what's the down and the upside of inclusion and downside of inclusion? If we can really look at the four, then then something can emerge that is more wise. It can be very confrontational and, and transgressional to do that. And I don't know, I find this is an amazing exploration. Um, I don't know how you resonate to that. Oh, that, that resonates 100%. And, uh, and I, too, I, I've, I've become obsessed with <laughs> spotting, <laughs> spotting polarities. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, still I'm still amazed at how often I don't get it uh, or I find myself also within a group because there's always, in my view, this, in my experience, when there is tension or when there's conflict or where a group is not able to progress, there's always one or two polarities in the room or being played out. And it doesn't... It takes a while sometimes to get it, um, which which I find some among the most excruciating moments when you're working with groups that it's a tension field and you can't you can't get it and then even if you get it you can't name it or you can't help a group to to name it. But I have the same experience that once mm. a group does see the tension field and once you do get them to move and from a more experiential embodied way, even literally in a room. Okay, now move here and now move there. What does it feel like to be here? What does it feel like to be there? Uh, sometimes a shift happens. One word on you said you mentioned deep democracy, and I just want to stop on that because that's very interesting. I think it's a it's it's well an approach, a method, or uh, of um, governance uh, and decision making that is coming from mostly the nonprofit sector. And I remember fifteen years ago, 20, 10, 15 years ago, when we were at the very beginning of this feed, I remember there was theocracy, and and then came holacracy, and like yeah, 15 years ago, and then there was there was uh, deep uh, deep democracy as well, and it was in South Africa, it was in in NGOs, it, and it didn't bring it to my knowledge. So maybe I'm uh, and I, I'm far from having the the big picture, but in my knowledge, I never really heard about deep democracy in the in the business sector, uh, and what I understood from it. Uh, I think we discussed it once in the podcast. Um, mm -hmm. But what I what I learned, what I remember from it is the idea of if we do a vote of a majority, we would actually take the wisdom of the minority. So we would like to speak out the, the what why the minority is saying that, and we just want to make sure we are not throwing the baby with the, the in the water of the bath. We are actually learning from the minority. We not not go for the minority of you know uh, intention or or. or Follow their their this their, their their intention, but we really want to understand why they are saying that because there is wisdom in that, and and I found that very very wise. Um, and very oftentimes in our democracies, I find this is so poor. Where yes, there's a vote, maybe forty one percent of people have voted for something, and so almost half of the of the other the other side is just left an orphan of their ideas, and they all their energy, all they wanted to you know express is just trashed, mm. and. Mm. In terms, it's 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 not really. Um, I can't find a word. It's not really. It's well. It's not for sure. Not optimal. What can we do with those this energy? What can you do with those ideas? 
and how mm-hmm. to integrate. And uh, I guess if you want to evolve in a society integration, integrating the other polarities, the other side is one of the, the keys. That's really what I've learned with Diane and in the Integral Facilitator Program. Yeah, yeah. And it's, uh, it's of course, the feast of recognition to, uh, to, hear, you express, to hear you express this. And it's, uh, I have followed also these, these movements. And I, I remember like when I started working, uh, we were also already talking about sociocracy, um, you know, and, and, and thinking about um, new ways of, of organizing. I think over over time, what I have learned is it becomes problematic when you start taking all these schools of thoughts as absolutes. So, for example, for me, I think deep democracy uh, methods. I, I am not a certified deep democracy practitioner, but I've I've taken some of the techniques and is very useful when you want to surface different perspectives and where you want to highlight tension or when you want to even kind of enlarge tension, which is of course one of the things that we learn in, in integral facilitation. So for exploring and for getting out those minority voices, for making a rich picture of you know, all the perspectives that you can uh, gather around a problem, it is wonderful. And if you have a group that is, um, that is willing and that is able to hold complexity, it can be very productive and very playful, actually. And then I think there is also something to say for like once you've done that, to take some of the more traditional methods that we have learned about negotiation, that we have learned about uh, consent-based decision-making, or just, you know, the more classical voting is also a time and place for that, to actually forge decisions. Because I've seen also groups that get terribly ineffective um, by, you know, like doing strategy um, by committee (laughs) or... Uh, so there is a way, I, I think, at some point where uh, where participation starts to backfire, um, and where it starts it starts holding back. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, when you want, yeah, yeah. I see too too much participation, too much of uh, yeah. uh, a, agreeable or um, an agreeable mind. I don't know if it's that. What do you mean? Um, um, yeah, too much participation. Let's say let's put it that way. Yeah, too much participation. And then I think I don't know if this resonates with your experience, but I think where organizations are trying to kind of upgrade their systems, and this is of course you know the essence of your whole podcast, <laughs> trying to kind of move a bit more towards circles, a bit away from pyramids, and and you have a few of those experience. What I've seen is that then organizations instead of taking one step forward, they take two steps back. You know, the hierarchy reasserts itself. This is not working. This is a trauma for everybody. We talk, we talk, we talk. And actually, we see a step back. And so then change efforts. Uh, yeah, they have counterproductive effects. It's not what we want. It's not in anybody's interest often, in my view. Yeah. Exactly. And so I'm, I'm in the, I, I was challenged by someone last week uh, who told me, why do you call this podcast Pyramid Two Circles? Why is it, why is it not? pyramid and circles and talking about mm-hmm. polarities uh i realized i had i have a bias that is yeah i prefer the fucking circle this is looks much better than the pyramid we should all go there mm-hmm. and i spotted myself i am biased i have i have a preference i i yeah. am i am I'm defending something which i don't really want to do i i want to explore uh with the you know in the search for the truth not in the search for defending what i like and I, in, so right now I'm in a place of exploring that question. Am I actually, you know, a, a, um, an activist of, of, of some sort uh, that is defining a truth, is truth, 
and 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 then why shouldn't it be pyramid and circle? So so what is the upside of the pyramid and and the downside of the circle? So so uh, these are very big questions I'd like to explore. So I'm curious of your point of view on that. Um, is it are we really going to go for only self-organized teams, uh, very decentralized power, and um, collective in which you know people decide together on everything? What about the individual leadership? What about the hierarchy of the competencies? You know, yeah, there uh, all the, 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 the hierarchies that that are also good. What if I start a business and I'm, and and then should I, um, you know, should I? So what does it mean to be the 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 founder? What has been to be the the responsible? Uh, and and what are the implications for the others in terms of decision making and and, and clarity of, uh, and, and 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 then in some kind of pyramid then of not of people of a people but I would say of, of roles of a roles in some cases, and um, yeah. so very um, yeah uh, curious to hear you on that. Yeah, so much to say. Hey? Um, yeah, I think one thing that I find very charming about this frame of of pyramid to circles is that. Um, in it is in its simplicity, and I think this is the this is the. I can have a very complicated discussion, like for example, in that university that I was just talking about, and there's a lot of confusion, and people are not hearing each other, and they're not connecting, and there's irritation, and people are they stop listening, um, and then to to bring it back to the essence, like okay, here we have two poles. This is what's going on, is very refreshing it, because it's I think also how our, our uh, our brains work <laughs> and so i i make these poles visible and now we can have a much better look at what's going on with us and i think i have a similar impulse when i when i hear like pyramid to circles i can immediately see like yeah of course we are as as a as human beings as societies we are upgrading upgrading our systems um from systems that have their origin in, you know, 18th, 19th century thinking <laughs> to something that definitely is going to look a lot more circular. <laughs> there is a lot more space for multiple intelligences. There is a lot more space for multiple voices. There is a lot more space for collective, for collectivity, for collective intelligence, as you always like to say. Uh, and nobody really knows what that looks like. We have, of course, increasing evidence, scientific evidence. We have increasing example, number of examples uh, and experiences and practices. And that's a way to craft a new story. Uh, but in that story, there's certainly also a space for verticality <laughs> uh, of all sorts, I think. That's a, lot, that's a lot more nuanced. But as a frame to say like, yeah, of course, a society that is based on a pyramidical way of thinking, a much more disjointed way of thinking, a top-down way of thinking, clearly everywhere around us, it runs up against its limits. Yeah, um, and, and it's not even designed to deal with the complexity. So it's designed to, to deal with little complexity. Yeah, it's it, exactly. And, and so it is you know, up to our generation, I think, to yeah, come yeah. up with better forms of organizing. And I think then to bring that back to simple frames helps to draw in many more people into the conversation. Mm. Um, and that is probably one way to really make things better. You mentioned it earlier in the podcast, the in the conversation, the, the idea of social and, and uh, environmental justice. And we, we live in a world, I think, where the divide or the, the, between the rich and the poor is greater and greater. And there is, I think, 
less of a middle class, but there is more of a lower class and an upper class and then a divide in the middle. And then there is the environmental justice or the environmental crisis or that is that is um, such a complex issue because at the individual level, our impact is so tiny and so 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 small that it's ungraspable. So it's a collective, you know. It's it's really the collective and the, the massive, the, ma- the, the 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 mass. So so that that can that, that creates this impact. So it's it's our system, our our mind is not really. It's very challenging and difficult for the mind to apprehend it. So I'm curious if you are hopeful, and if yes, what makes you hopeful? You see different responses. I think if you if you look at the combination of all these this narrative of all these crises that we are that we are in. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a there is a, a very valid way to just say let's just ignore this you know this let's just ignore or even take a step back and I think that is one of the reasons why narratives like make America great again and you, you've seen them in different countries have such an appeal you know it 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 speaks to the part of our nervous system that wants to keep everything as it is and just wants to just shut the blinds and just kind of almost in nostalgia go back to just pretend it never happened almost. There is also the part that is just kind of soldiering on, uh, also still with quite a lot of ignorance, you know, piecemeal change, piecemeal measures, um, but not really coming to grips with the reality. I I see, for example, some of the contemporary debates around uh, refugees. People are talking about quota and they're talking about like little measures. Uh, You can't, how many people can come in? Is it 20,000? Is it 25,000? And not seeing the systemic dimension of what's of what's going on, for example, around climate change or around war, of course, much more much closer by to where we both sit. Um, then there's maybe also the, the the doomsday way, and this this is we see a lot also in activist circles where there is so much grief and so much overwhelm uh, that we get very little done. <laughs> um, and I can really side with. When I work with leadership teams, we often are in spaces where there is, you know, this climate grief or this grief of of other sorts, and I can really empathize and feel uh, inside with that. Um, and it's not always productive uh, because you you do automatically come to a place where you say it doesn't matter anyway. Like who cares about one and a half degrees or two degrees? It's um, and there is also maybe a perspective where we hold a much bigger space and can just look like okay it's not okay it's five past 12 but that's just that's just looking at a clock you know you can also think about take a, a 50 year or 100 year or a 200 year perspective and from that perspective there is a lot of reasons to be very hopeful to just to see that gradually we do make progress and gradually we do learn and gradually you know there is so much good intent in the world uh, and people are putting that intent to good use um so that's that's something different than just soldiering on. It's really trying to make things better, but make things better also at a deeper at a deeper level. From that perspective, I'm very hopeful personally. I'm just curious if you if you how you relate this notion of healing and this notion of pain and fear that is in every one of us, and of course in maybe more or less in different groups of people in different organizations or teams or collectives. Um, and have you, have you been confronted to that question of, okay, we need to do some healing? And if yes, how would you do that? It's a very, very open question. Yeah, I think for me, 
um, pain and, and grief and then anger and impatience and irritations, they're emotions, but emotion is also energy. And, and emotion is also intelligence. And so I think what we have to learn, and I'm also learning just as we all are, to, is to put those emotions to good use, to not, to not numb them or, or put them away. Which, of course, in civil society organizations happens just as, just as anywhere else, you know, because it's, it's, there's often a, a, where, where I encounter bitterness or where I encounter skepticism um, or where I encounter overwhelm. Um, and I think then facilitation and also coaching is about like helping people or cultures or systems to see the intelligence in those emotions and to work, to work with them, to understand, to be with them, to, to transform. Um, and this is, this is difficult work, but it is probably necessary work. And we have to learn how to, how to do that better. Mm. This is maybe also a reason why kind of meaningful collective change. If you don't address, you know, the individual, the, the individual dimension, um, so maybe we didn't and, talk uh, about that yet. The individual di dimension. Maybe a couple of words on that. Um, um, you do coaching on this. You, so you would also coach people. You would coach uh, uh, in one on one uh, as you are dealing with the group. You would do coaching on individuals as well that are part of the group. Yeah. So when we work with leadership teams, we often are in a position where we can work at a group level. Uh, for example, on some of the issues we talk about, talked about before, but also where we can help uh, individual leaders to make a step in their development. And of course, that in itself, you know, like people taking at the the, the 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 possibility for people to become more self-aware of you know their own beliefs, their own fears, their own you know desires, their ambitions, is of course has direct benefits for the collective uh, intelligence. And I find that there are simply you know levels of depth that are difficult to cover in a group, and for which you really need the one-on-one. -on -one kind of intimacy or the one-on-one -on -one, uh, energy. And I think I'm very intrigued by all the ways in which the collective and the individual, how you can create synergies and how you can create cultures where mm. people help each other grow. Um, uh, I think that's that's a very powerful, uh, powerful potential there, I think. Mm. Can we... Because we spend so much of our time in organizations, can we create organizations where your individual growth or development becomes just as important a bottom line as some of the other things that we want to achieve? You know, be they financial or and the things we, we, you know, the products and services we bring out into the world. Yeah. Do you have experience in, of organizations in which this is the case? Do you have examples? Or have you seen that? Or is it more something that you dream or wish for the future? I think increasingly, if you... I think increasingly there is uh, more attention for individual development in the context of organizations. Um, and I see there are various motivations at work there. And maybe this resonates also with your experience, but of course, you know, the fact that it becomes more and more difficult to find, you know, leadership capacity in labor markets, for example, uh, that can handle the kind of complexity that most organizations uh are facing is definitely an issue you, know, you can't just buy the, <laughs> the the leadership skills in the market so to speak you know you have to you have to grow i think it's also a new generation of leaders coming into the workplace that really um 
that also have this notion of development as a type of income, you know, they look at they look at different organizations and then take that into the equation when they decide if they want to work somewhere. Um, I think that's something that we see. Um, and we see organizations that take that very seriously and also who understand that a developing organization is just also a more effective organization. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So I see lots of examples yeah, where people I... are trying to bring more of that into yeah. that. Yeah, I see that too. I see that in our clients as well. This is a, I don't know if you've you heard the concept of uh, this book, Humanocracy. Um, and what there is Robert Keegan also speaks about that. So it's it's the idea, the whole idea that uh, um, instead of uh, having an organization based on bureaucracy in which we are going to um, use people's talent to, to, to reach their objectives, we're going to create an organization that is actually in service of people's talent to grow. And that therefore we're going to, doing so, we're going to reach the outcome. But it's not using them; it's more serving them and creating the an enabling space, being an enabling context for these for the people to grow. That's that's this is where there is energy, and, and development, and that's and that's uh, I think it's a, it's a big shift of mindset. How to do it is a big question for many, uh, and to scale it because you can do it maybe at some level in in some ways, but to scale it as really the culture, and in the in, and put it in the DNA. Uh, and, yeah. And what yeah. and what does that mean concretely to do that? It's a big question. So, so maybe this for another another conversation. But it's I'm for sure it's happening. I see. Yeah. It's it's a big question, but I'm also very um, I'm I'm very um, inspired by all the practical ways in which you can um, really practice this. And I think if if I go back to some of the work that you and I have done together, for example, with Diane uh, or in other places. Uh, it is perhaps less difficult than we think to add a developmental dimension to, mm. you know, to, for example, collaboration. So creating, it's all, it's almost like, you know, creating another learning loop, but just in mm. practice. So I was with a leadership team the other day and they were also talking about uh, developing a new program and the debate heated up and discussions got, got very lively. And there were certainly a few polarities in the room. Um, and I was just observing as a facilitator, okay, how are these people speaking to each other? What's, you know, how are they listening? How are Mm. they creating space for each other? And then it's really, um, a wonderful way to contribute as a facilitator by just kind of stopping them sometimes and saying, okay, just pay attention to what just happened. What just happened when you said this and you responded in that way, and you can even pick small moments like that who kind of open up a field of learning uh, and it doesn't have to take a long time. Oh, okay. So when you responded in this way, how did that make you feel? Okay. What are we now learning about the system? What are we learning about the culture that we are creating here? What are we learning? What's happening when we're always speeding up and nobody has the capacity to, to just slow down a moment. Mm. Um, and I think this is a wonderful way to, to work on concrete issues. These people were developing a program. It's very exciting but to also have this kind of developmental dimension and how are we growing in the process or how do we have to grow in the process to yeah, really be better together. So th- that's the stuff that excites me. It's very complex, big things, big questions. I think it's time to um, end. You alone with the audience, I get my microphone and you say what you want and you can just be silent and offer a moment of silence to everybody. Um, or just say whatever is on your heart and and in your heart and you you that is maybe dear to you and, and maybe a message you want to transmit to the people that you know in the future uh, this is recorded in a 
July 2023. Um, distance of geography as well. Can we see? I cut my mic and remove my headset. Yeah, so I think um, in many ways we live in unprecedented times. So we have all these crises and all that urgency uh, that is troubling many people's hearts and minds. Uh, and all of those things are true. Um, but what I'm feeling hopeful about is the way in which all these challenges also offer unprecedented opportunity for growth, for our personal growth, and for our collective growth. And what makes me even more hopeful is that uh, more than uh, more than anywhere else uh, in history, we've we have now an increasing body of knowledge, of tools, of practices at our disposal uh, that can support us in that growth. Even if you uh, listen back some of the episodes of this podcast, there's just an amazing body of work emerging, whether it's holacracy or sociocracy or deep democracy, nonviolent communications, newer schools of thought, older schools of thought, all that knowledge is available And increasingly, people also understand that we have to put knowledge into, into practices and that we have to create practices that can help us to form new habits. So if I combine these things like unprecedented um, urgency problems, unprecedented opportunity, uh, growing body of things that we can actually do and try and practice to, to grow, then uh, I'm actually really hopeful And it really is what gets me up every day and uh, uh, really what I wish and hope for uh, everybody listening to this podcast. And I'm back. So, Remco, thank you for <laughs> this moment. Uh, it was wonderful talking to you. It was a great catch-up. We hadn't talked in a while. What can I wish you for the future? Is there anything we can wish you for? More more opportunities to uh, to do my own inner work and to, uh, to, to spend time and attention to... Uh, to all the ways in which uh, which I can grow and also grow together with others. You didn't you didn't we didn't talk about that but I think one of your big values is about that it's about is the the very strong experience and, and believe the experience that the outer growth goes with the inner growth or the impact you can have goes with the inner growth. Yeah, and I think um, I'm always I'm so grateful for all the teams and the organizations and the leaders that uh, that enable us to to work with them because I very often feel that we are the biggest beneficiaries of all their energy and all their intent and all their wisdom. So it's a, it's a very privileged uh, thing to be able to do with your life, to facilitate, to facilitate or support the development of, uh, of others. Thank you, my friend. I um, wish you all the best. And then for our audience, I hope this episode brought you new ideas and inspiration for whatever the challenges you are dealing with right now uh, at, at work and in your life. So, uh, well, stay tuned for our next episode. Bye.